0: Welcome to Radio Curious, and part two in our series about the myth of sex addiction. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel, and our guest is Dr. David Lay, the author of the book entitled The Myth of Sex Addiction. We'll talk about the evolutionary aspects and cultural aspects of why some people like and or engage in sex more frequently than others. You may listen to our first interview with Dr. Lay on our website, radiocurious.org. Dr. David Lay and I spoke from his office in Albuquerque, New Mexico on August 6, 2012. We began part two when I asked him to talk about human evolutionary development and human sexual behavior.
1: sexuality has been influenced and in shaped by our evolutionary history by the things that let people be successful in reproduction and that what we're seeing today and in many cases some of the things that uh people are concerned about and troubled about with sex are the direct result of that evolutionary history
0: for example well, uh, men's
1: reaction to uh sexual variety or men's desire for sexual variety. You know there there's a there's a famous story, whether or not it's true or not, who knows, it's a wonderful story called the Coolidge Effect, where Calvin Coolidge, President Calvin Coolidge and his wife were touring a, a, a chicken farm and, uh, the, his wife, you know, was told that the male, uh, rooster, um, had sex many, many times during the day, um, uh, and, and didn't get tired. And, Coolidge's wife thought that was fascinating. And she said, you know, would you tell the president that? And when they told the president that, he said, hmm, you know, is that with the same female chicken or many? And they said, well, actually, it's with many different chicken. Chicken and chickens and he said, "Well, would you tell the would you tell the first lady that? Because male sexuality responds to a variety. When we have, you know, it, one of the things that we see across the length of a marriage, for instance, or monogamous relationship, is some decrease in interest in sex. But as we inject in there um, stimulus or interest in, for instance, other women." Um, male sexuality then peaks. Well, that is just a part of that evolutionary history. That throughout, you know, throughout evolutionary times, men's uh, men men desired to reproduce with multiple other women, with kind of some idea that <clears throat> that would increase some chances of their children surviving.
0: Well, basically expand the gene pool so that the other Half of the X chromosomes come from a different person.
1: Absolutely, and and so that that interest in sexual variety is something that we see playing out, for instance, on the internet. It's an, it's something that is a big drive behind uh, male infidelity. Is that uh, men's bodies can sometimes get. Um, a little less responsive and can then respond more to a new body, a new image of the idea of sex with a new partner. Um, that's, not, that's not something unhealthy. It's not something disturbing. It's not something evil. It is just something about the way that we are. Um, but it is something that, you know, makes sexual variety or the variety of information and sexual stimulus that's available on the Internet through Internet pornography. That's something that drives that. You know, people talk a lot about, oh, men watching the Internet, they they click from one image to the next. Well, yeah, of course they do, because that level of variety or stimulation is exciting. When When a, when a man watches pornography with um uh, a single person um it, it, they get bored after a while and their and they're, their body and uh their penis actually stops reacting quite as much but then when you add in or switch to a new image their body reacts strongly that's just part of the way that we are but if we characterize that as something that is evil or something that is immoral. If we, if we, if we characterize men's desire for, for variety as something that is shameful and something that needs to be overcome, then we're creating a situation where men are really behind the eight ball and then they start, have to start keeping that stuff secret. Um, and, uh, and we start, we start shaming them and making their normal urges something that is disturbing and something that is uh, something to be hidden
0: let's stay with what you call normal urges and talk about the difference between male and female sexual fantasies
1: Now, this is one of the fascinating things is that, you know, male and female sexuality are different and they're different in many different ways. We're never going to make male and female sexuality the same. Now, when I say this, I'm talking about all men and all women. I'm not talking about one man and one woman, because individual variation, um, is oftentimes less than that variation of a whole pool. So one man might be very similar to, to, to a woman, but when we look at all men and all women together, we, we see some really significant differences. So all, you know, men tend to sexually fantasize about body parts about you know simple simple sex or sexual interactions without much context women tend to fantasize about context about relationship um they they prefer to have a a kind of you know a situation within which this sex is occurring so the difference i like to point out is that you know uh internet pornography and uh erotic romance like you know the these famous books right now um, uh, shades of gray. These are two different ways that they are <clears throat> triggering male sexuality and female sexuality. Shades of gray and that kind of erotic romance is female sexual fantasy. They want that sex, but it has to occur within the context of a relationship. Male sexual fantasy is, is, it, it, is less connected. It is more, um, anonymous, so to speak. Um, and focused more on just the sex without much need for that kind of context or relationship.
0: Is there a thought that you could share with us about the evolutionary development of that difference?
1: Well, it, it's a very interesting question. Now, one of the things is that uh, really drives uh, some of these differences between female and male sexuality is, is a certain number. Now, throughout history... Only 40% of men reproduced. As we look at the genetic makeup of, of people today, we see that only 40% of the men throughout the history of humanity reproduced, but 80% of women reproduced.
0: So why is that?
1: Well, because it, it, it it's a lot harder for men to secure the the opportunity to reproduce. <clears throat> Women, um, uh, women and female sexuality—the ability to reproduce—has been something of a commodity through history. And so, powerful men, you know, oftentimes had harems or had multiple women, and, and would control access to them. Men who were not as powerful or not as successful couldn't get access to those women on, in order to reproduce. That's a really important number that has a lot of downstream implications because it, it for instance, means that. The men that we, the men that we are descended from are those men who were powerful who were jealous of sexuality and guarded it, and those men who, when a sexual opportunity was present, they responded quickly and impulsively. It's one reason why that sexual variety and that desire to respond impulsively and quickly to sexual situations is something so ingrained in male sexuality.
0: That seems clear. It would link back to the fact that under a Darwinian analysis, the more fit or the stronger male is the one that's going to reproduce first, and his descendants would be the ones who inherit that trait. Whereas the weaker male is unable to reproduce, and there are few weaker males.
1: Absolutely. It's also why we see so much more sexual fluidity in females, because, you know, so many more females through history have reproduced um women today there is a greater variety um uh of different kinds of women there uh and, and female sexualities. Women respond to a greater diversity of sexual situations whereas male sexuality is very rigid one of the one of the stories I love to tell is that they took uh goats and sheep and in this British study and they switched them uh, uh so they had goats that were raised by goats, and then at, a, at about six months or a year, they switched them, and then they had them raised by sheep. Well, then after a while, they switched them back. The goats that had learned to be with sheep then got put back with goats. Male, The male goats and the male sheep were unable to be sexually aroused by their home species, by their by their own species, because they had learned to be sexual with the other species females were able to adapt and return to sexuality with their with their own sex male sexuality is much more rigid male sexuality gets stuck more and so that's one reason why we see things like fetishes and paraphilias that's one reason why we see more bizarre kinds of sexuality for instance people that, you you know, are are in the news and getting in trouble for having sex with pavement. I mean, there was literally a man in the news a few months ago who was uh, publicly in trouble because he got caught having sex with a sidewalk. You don't see women doing that. And part of that is because male sexuality gets rigid and gets stuck in these odd places much, much more than female sexuality does. That is the result of... That evolutionary history that has reinforced males being very sexual and very impulsive and very quick, um, the, the the powerful male sex drive is something that um, has let those men be uh, successful in reproduction, but it comes with a price.
0: And it's obviously part of the 60% of the men who don't have children. That's right. In this edition of Radio Curious, part two, in a conversation with David Lay, the author of The Myth of Sex Addiction. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. David, what kind of reaction do you uh, sometimes find because of your name, David Lay, writing about sex addiction or the myth thereof?
1: You know, it's funny because there are people out there that believe that my name is a pseudonym. They they think that, you know, a a doctor whose last name is Lay that is writing about sex must have made up that name. But it really is my name. I guess, you know, um, somebody just destined me to write about sex the, the the other kind of funny thing is that my name is actually spelled L-E-Y which is the Spanish word for law and there was a, an article recently that was published on CNN and it, it was translated into Spanish and then it was translated back into English well when they translated it back into English my last name turned into law so all of a sudden in this article I'm referred to as Dr. Law I've decided that if I ever become a superhero that will be my name Dr. Law fighting for, for peace and justice
0: Another question that has occurred to me in in our conversations. When you're interviewed by a female interviewer, are the questions different? Is there, are there a different approach?
1: One of the things that that I do is I talk about you know my challenges to the concept of sex addiction is that I do think that many of these things, you know, for instance, the higher libido that is in men is something that is being turned into a disease. And I want my readers and listeners to understand that many of these things we're calling sex addiction are just part of male sexuality. But one of the things that female readers and female listeners really respond to is when I talk about the need for responsibility, because one of the other pieces of the sex addiction concept that I find really disturbing is the idea that male sexual desire is so powerful that men can't control it, and thus they're not responsible for it. I think that that is absolute malarkey. I think that men are as responsible for their choices whether they are turned on or not, and that these men who are are out there being unfaithful to their wives are making choices. Now, they may need to understand their choices better, and they may need to understand some of the things that are driving them to have an interest in infidelity or internet porn or whatever, but to blame that choice on sex addiction is absolutely irresponsible, and I I think that the sex addiction industry is really being unethical in that they're creating an image of men as weak that when a man is turned on he can't control himself and he can't make good choices and women out there the world over know that that's not true they know that when a man makes a decision he is making a choice and should be responsible for that choice whether he's turned on or not
0: so you're saying that blame is misplaced and you're saying that if a person, a male person in this situation makes a choice, he's responsible.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and the
0: examples would be?
1: The idea that sex addiction is something that takes away men's power to turn off the Internet, for instance. I I hear from these people who say, well, you know, I, was, I masturbated on the Internet for 12 hours and I couldn't stop. Well, there was a time when you could stop, for instance, before you turned the computer on. Or what if, instead, you got rid of your Internet service at home? You put the computer out in a public place in the home so that you couldn't masturbate privately. These are all places where, yes, when you are turned on, you, just like any other human being, can sometimes make bad choices you know when we are turned on and want wanting to have sex with somebody, we will agree to lots of things that we wouldn't normally agree to when we're when we 're not turned on you know whether, whether you call it beer goggles or whatever when we 're turned on sometimes we make bad choices but there is the ability to make good choices around that before that, even after that, to take responsibility for those things and and part of the the education I think we need to do is to help people understand that having a sexual desire influence our choices is normal, but we can be responsible for our choices. Even knowing that that sexual desire is going to influence us. So for instance, if you are a person who um, is subject to kind of losing control of yourself when masturbating on the internet, then maybe you shouldn't have internet at home and that maybe that's your way of being responsible for yourself. It's not that the Internet has control over you, and it's not that you can't control yourself sexually, but you have to plan for it, and you have to make good decisions early on.
0: David Lay, you've indicated that there's a changing role of the concept of sex addiction in a courtroom. Tell us about that, please.
1: Well, sex addiction as a concept and as a a diagnosis does not meet American federal or Supreme Court standards for admissible evidence and yet the the defense of sex addiction <clears throat> is turning up in court more and more these days in in uh North Carolina just a uh, n- just a couple of months ago there was a man who was convicted of rape and murder and uh... his defense was that he was a sex addict and he said as a result of being a sex addict he was mentally ill and he didn't deserve the death penalty um... that that argument was apparently successful because he was not um, uh, given the death penalty by the jury Um, and yet sex addiction is not real it's not a real diagnosis it doesn't belong in court the other thing is that we have Judges, um ordering people into sex addiction treatment as, you know, as a part of their probation or as a part of their parole. But again, as I've said before, sex addiction treatment doesn't work. We have no evidence that it is real or anything different. And so it's unfortunate that our judges and our juries at our court system is being bombarded by the media that is saying sex addiction is real um, so real that it's getting into court and it doesn't belong there
0: how would you phrase in your profession as a clinical psychologist dealing with people who have sexual matters that cause them to come visit you how would you characterize a uh, good societal way recognizing our evolutionary component that would treat the cause of these forms of inappropriate behavior, if inappropriate is the right characterization of what you're saying?
1: I think this should go towards um, a greater understanding of the differences between male and female sexuality, And not turning those things into evil or unhealthy things. I think that we should be teaching young men out there that, yes, the Internet and sex on the Internet and Internet pornography is something that is going to be very stimulating to you by nature of you being male. But that doesn't mean you can't make good choices. I think we also need to be more accepting of that. There was a study in Canada a couple of years ago where they tried to find a control group of young college-age males who had never seen pornography. They were unable to find such a control group. So... What that means is that almost every male in our society has seen pornography, and yet we are not awash in sex crime. We are not um, uh, awash in rape. And in fact, as Internet pornography has gone up, levels of sexual violence, levels of sexual abuse and rape have gone down. I think we need to add that to the argument and start acknowledging that these things that we are afraid of might actually be good. We need to understand them and understand how they play a role in people's lives and sexuality.
0: Maybe we can do that by explaining the amount of money that's spent in the United States in comparison to other categories that's spent on uh, pornography as opposed to sports or cultural activities. Can you do that for us?
1: Oh sure, you know more money is spent on um uh sexual sexual entertainment, internet pornography, uh you know uh, pornography DVDs, magazines, etc. More money is spent on that than um uh sports and things like Broadway entertainment combined. These are billions of dollars. This is a huge huge industry. Um That, you know, in the 1920s or 1919, prohibition against alcohol passed because a very strong, committed minority um, was out there saying that drinking was immoral, and all of those people who drank... were afraid to stand up to that argument, because if they did, if they admitted that they drank, then they were automatically characterized as immoral. Well, today we have the same thing. We have this committed minority of people who are attacking um, pornography and erotic stimulation as immoral, and all of those people who spend billions of dollars consuming that stuff are um, uh, afraid to stand up and admit that they do so because it is called immoral. But really, it's natural. Really, those things are naturally stimulating the natural parts of our sexuality. Um, It's not immoral. It's just part of the way we're made.
0: Well, we know it's natural from an evolutionary perspective. Do we know that it's uh, characterized as immoral if we go back in our genetic history, uh, let's say a thousand years or two thousand years, when we were genetically the same uh, human beings that we are now. Uh, how do you mean? Was it? Well, I'm talking about a religious overlay or a political overlay. If we can accept that religion and politics basically have the same social structure of defining how people should behave or not behave that was substantially different 2,000 years ago than it is now.
1: Absolutely. You know, and uh, th- there were significant differences, but in a lot of ways, uh, some of the same forces were still at play. You know, a 1,000 years ago, um, uh, sex was still something to be controlled um, and was characterized as, as something that if you enjoyed it too much was a sign, for instance, that the devil might enter your soul. You know, women masturbating was the way in which the devil gained access to their soul and led to the witch trials... Um, it, 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 a thousand years ago in Europe, men and women uh, had sex through through a certain shirt called a shemishagul, which which had a little hole in it um, for the man and woman, um, or for their genitalia to line up and, and connect without any other body parts touching. Because enjoying sex too much was considered immoral and fearful. The interesting thing is though that occurred in Western societies, but there are other societies. For instance, Polynesian Asian societies that were more sex-positive, that were more accepting and acknowledging of different levels of sexual desire, Um, and those societies did not crumble. Those societies didn't dissolve into um, a morass of rape and debauchery. Um, the way that people today would believe. Um, in, you know, in some Polynesian uh, societies, teenagers were encouraged to be promiscuous, and it didn't lead to the destruction of the societies
0: So staying with this concept, you make a reference, in, looks like a hundred or more footnotes in your book, about a book called Lust in Translation, Tokyo to Tennessee, where sexual behaviors throughout the world are widely varied
1: absolutely you know the the uh, it's a fabulous book by pamela Druckerman and um, it it talks about the different ways in which uh, infidelity is played out around the world and you know a a fascinating concept is that uh, you know in france the society does not treat infidelity as an intrinsic moral failing so at the same time roughly that bill clinton was being impeached for you know being unfaithful to his wife uh, you know a later french president francois mitterrand um had a mistress and children with that mistress and people knew about it they just didn't treat it as a big deal And yet there is less infidelity in France than there is in the United States. They just don't treat it as such a problem.
0: Well, Dr. David Lay, author of The Myth of Sex Addiction. Thank you very much for joining us in a two-part discussion on Radio Curious. And before we close, three questions, an epiphany or aha moment in your life. Can you share one?
1: You know, one of the things that I uh, I talk about in my book a little bit is that, uh, you know, I was born with a physical disability. I, I have just one hand. Um, my left arm is, is shorter. Um... That has changed the way in which I live because there are a lot of things that other people do that I can't do it their way. I have to find my own way to do things that is different but uh, for me just as good. That has impacted the way I live, the way I work, the way I write, how I work as a psychologist because it's, it's given me this flexibility of looking at the way in which people... Do things, um, that achieve good results for them. It may be different for other people, but it's not, it's not bad, it's not diseased, it's not deficient. Just because I have to tie my shoes differently than a person with two hands doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the way I tie my shoes. It gets the job done.
0: And what would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life?
1: Well, you know, I think that, uh, one thing that I keep doing, um, is, Standing up for people who are different. You know, because of my arm, I am different from other people. Just because somebody is different doesn't give you the right um, to tell them that they're sick.
0: And finally, is there another book that you could recommend to our listeners?
1: It's a book called uh, "What Are Men Good For Anyway" by a psychologist named Roy Baumeister. It is a wonderful, wonderful book that really examines. Um, the role of men in our society today, and he really he talks a lot about some of the stuff that I talk about in the myth of sex addiction, um, why male sexuality is the way it is, and what's good about it. He talks about the strength that men have in our society and how, as we characterize men as weak and deficient and as we characterize male sexuality as being something that is overpowering and disturbing, that we're doing a disservice to men and we're doing a disservice to society. I really recommend it. It really changed the way I look at male and female um, relationships and our concept of masculinity as a whole.
0: Dr. David Lay thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious
1: Barry I've really enjoyed it thank you for having me on
0: Dr. David Lay is the author of The Myth of Sex Addiction the book he recommends is Is There Anything Good About Men? How Cultures Flourish by Exploiting Men by Roy F. Baumeister this interview with Dr. David Lay was recorded on August 6, 2012. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. They're all free. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707 462 65 Christina Anested and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.